Welcome to the Louder Vision podcast for creative people. I'm filmmaker, artist, and your host, Laura Mioli Farragon. I'm also author of the book, Clarity for Your Creative Career, tips, advice, and inspiration from successful artists to quit the job you hate and create a life you love. The paperback and the ebook versions are available now on amazon.com and my website, loudervision.com. You can also find some of my interactive courses on how to create your very own podcast and how to record high quality video from home on Skillshare.com. All those links are in the description below. On today's episode, we're talking about media literacy with my guest, Michelle Chula Lipkin. She is the executive director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. She's also an adjunct lecturer at my alma mater, Brooklyn College, where she teaches media literacy. Michelle, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really nice for you to join today because media literacy is a really big topic. For those that don't know, how would you define media literacy and who's it important to? Uh, That's a great question and one I can answer readily. So I love when we start with those kind of questions. So the way that my organization defines media literacy is we define it as the ability to access, analyze, evaluate, create, and act using all kinds of communication, all forms of communication, I should say. And so really the way we think about media literacy is it's an expanded definition of literacy. And it's really you know, asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a literate citizen in today's world? And you really do need to move beyond foundational literacy, which is understanding print text and understand all the types of communication and all the forms of media around us. When you ask who is it important for, you know, it's really hard to not just say everyone. (laughs) It really is truly um, an incredibly important concept, incredibly important skills that all people need to have to thrive in the world today. It is a very digitally uh, complex world. Our information ecosystem is incredibly complicated. And in order to really navigate it, in order to really understand it, we need media literacy skills. So in our perspective, media literacy skills should be taught from the earliest ages through higher ed. And certainly we need to support communities um, to have structures in place for those out of in, out of formal school those older than formal, you know, formal education to continue to learn about the new technology system. So what can our public libraries and our Mm -hmm. uh, community centers do to support lifelong learning in this realm? Yeah. And especially during the pandemic, the lockdown, people didn't necessarily have access to libraries to be able to go in and take these kind of classes. A lot of them were offered online. And I know people over 65 or even over, you know, 40 years old that were like learning how to use a computer for the first time during the pandemic, even just to register to get your vaccine, you had to use a computer. People were like enlisting teenagers to help them do that. So it's really become something that is important to everyone and not only just children, because I'm sure children are growing up with tablets and iPads in their hands, but what about that generation that didn't grow up with it? You know, like I'm on the cusp of that. I got a computer maybe when I was in high school. So right. I think that that we often, we often, from a society point of view, we often make technology into a youth issue, mm-hmm. which is so silly because it's really not. It's a society issue, right? It's an issue yeah. for all of us, no matter what our age is. And I think 
that we've completely underestimated the shift that the the vast and quick changes in technology have had on our culture and you know in the past it would take a hundred years for a new form of communication to take hold and our communication systems have changed drastically and you know systemically in in the last 15 years Mm -hmm. so how did we think people were going to learn how to do this (laughs) (laughs) and I think that we're all learning and we're all panicking a little bit and I think that when you look at even just you know the research that was done after the 2016 election and finding that the majority of false information that was spread on Facebook was spread by 65 year olds and older well, you know, that makes sense. Like, they, yeah. how did they know? You know, they grew up in a time where they believed what they read. You know, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't learn the critical thinking skills. They didn't learn how to research and analyze. And, you know, so, so it isn't the fault of a certain generation. It's, it's kind of us all taking responsibility that we can't expect people to just naturally learn these systems. Like, it will require education. Yeah. That generation, they grew up having to research things in an encyclopedia, go to a library and find the information. And now that it's so easy and you get it on your phone, I wonder how do we convey the importance to everyone? Because the evolution of media has made it that we don't seek out that information on our own. We're not actively going to look in an encyclopedia. It's news articles and headlines coming directly to us the algorithm is based on the information that Facebook and Instagram are taking from our phones for free. It's Mm -hmm. what we're paying to those social media sites to be able to use them. And a lot of people don't understand that. There was a great documentary called The Social Dilemma, which I really loved. I wish everyone would watch it because it just explains how these sites take our information, use it to advertise right back to us. And it gets us in this polarization loop. Like we're getting the same information that we are used to clicking on just fed right back to us. And that's how people get into these loops of conspiracy theories and stuff. We're not being challenged with a conflicting information. Yeah. So I think you bring up some good points. I do want to say that I, while I think social dilemma brought up a really, really important topics that some people had never been thinking of, Mm -hmm. it was really just you know, it was fully fear-mongering and some of those reenactments with the fake family were, I I just, I I think that there was, I think there was a better way to, to do what they needed to do without Mm -hmm. scaring the crap out of people. And (laughs) I do think it's like, it's also recognizing that the, the great majority of people behind that film were people that had a say in how these systems were built. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, not that I, I knock them. I think that they're doing some really good work now in a reflective mode, but I just felt like there are positives to these social networks and there is um, connection in these social networks and there is creativity in these social networks. And I think that making people terrified of them is not the answer. Um, educating them around it is what is the mm-hmm. answer. And so for that sake, if people are more aware of algorithms because of that film, that's good. But you made a really good point in, in framing that it used to be we would seek information. Mm-hmm. And now the systems are in place where the assumption is information finds us, right? Mm-hmm. We start searching and then all of a sudden all those you know algorithms go into place and we get fed more information 
but I think that we do need to recognize that they do we do have some individual power in who we follow yeah and what we click on exactly Mm -hmm. like we really do have some power so I do think it's really um it's really important to educate around the algorithmic bias and the algorithmic model but it's also like, okay, what can I do as an individual to say, I want to hear from these voices. I want to explore some different points of view and mm-hmm. taking the power to follow those sites and to follow those pe- people and, and to do some searching, right? So um, there's a lot of people in kind of the media literacy space that talk about lateral reading now. Um, and it's a concept, Sam Weinberg from you, uh, from Stanford has been talking quite a bit about and this idea of is you open an article and you click you know you click on the links you open other tabs you research the author on another tab you mm-hmm. research some the topic on another tab and you're doing you're reading across the internet mm-hmm. and that is practice that people um, need to do it's the more it's the new version of pulling another encyclopedia off the shelf yeah. right so I do think that the danger with information that comes at us is that we can be passive. So we have to figure out ways to still engage and to still kind of test that algorithm and to find other information and to, you know, I don't want to say do our own research because that has been like (laughs) now with the pandemic, it's just been so abused but to understand how to access information, to understand where to find reliable information, that's really important. So the bottom line is, I think you've brought up a really good point about how information flow has changed. Yes. <laughs> and you, and let's not forget just the sheer quantity of information that mm-hmm. we're, are, we're, we're able to access is so much different than you know, what we could have accessed before the digital age. So it's really important to note that, yes, there are power structures around us that do impact and do control the flow of information, but we have to empower ourselves to, to follow sources and follow people that will get us to, to maybe more reliable information will get us to more varied information. Mm -hmm. I know that that after George Floyd's death and just the growing social justice movement, there was kind of a push on social media to really encourage white people to follow black leaders and to follow black creators and to follow black thought leaders and Mm -hmm. organizations and to do your own part in diversifying the information that gets to you. And I think that's important to remember that we can do that. We Mm -hmm. still can do that. Absolutely. Something you mentioned about the social dilemma and how it was edited. That's something that I teach in my class, digital storytelling. We have the students work on their own videos only after they've seen how other videos are put together because video is so important today in the way news is delivered and information is delivered that I don't think everyone realizes how easy it is to manipulate people's emotions through video. You have so many more tools at your disposal when you're working with video than you do in an article. And so there's so much more power of manipulation and trickery. And that's, you know, a lot of the conspiracy theory videos are very heavily edited with this very dramatic music. And I don't think people realize that they're being manipulated through video. Right. I think that that's like one of the major tenets within media literacy is Mm -hmm. how is media constructed? 
what are the production techniques used to get your attention, to keep your attention, to tell the story, to manipulate or persuade or have you feel a certain way because mm-hmm. media content is created for us to have a reaction, for us to have feelings about what we're mm-hmm. watching. Um, you just described why I don't ever, I never watch the news. I only listen to the news because I don't want to be impacted by the visuals that the newsmakers mm-hmm. think are important because the visuals are often the most extreme versions of the story and they're played over and over and over again, right? The worst mm-hmm. of the worst is played over and over again. And that's really hard for me because I'm relatively sensitive. Obviously, if there's a big story going on and I feel like I, I do need to understand what's happened, I will look. But ultimately, I like to listen because I, I do feel like there's one less choice <laughs> that, yeah. uh, the, that newsmakers can make. And that's what are people looking at right now? They're just focused on the story. Now, can they manipulate with the words and can they manipulate with the music they use? Of mm-hmm. course, like they want to keep our attention. But I think that the, you know, the idea of teaching media literacy through people creating their own media is a really, really important thing to stress because it is really, truly a really good way Mm -hmm. to understand the way media is created and even playing with audience. Like even if you ask a four-year-old to take a picture with a still camera for their sister or take a picture for their grandma or -hmm. take a picture for their teacher, they'll already, they will take different pictures for their different audience. Right. Mm -hmm. So you start to realize that like all of these factors are in play when you create story. And I think documentary is really tricky because documentary has bias and documentary has production techniques and Mm -hmm. social dilemma use pretty severe production techniques, the way they personified the algorithm, which is actually you know, from a media literacy point of view, kind of the point is algorithms are not people, right? They're not, we're humanizing something that's specifically not human. And that is confusing, you know, Mm -hmm. and then the dramatization of that family, we don't, you know, we don't ever see a family that actually is handling technology in a balanced, healthy way. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't see the even potential necessary for the other side. I mean, they get to it toward the end, But their production techniques are so severe and so deliberate that they want people to wake up and be scared Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, ask for change. And, and all of that is, you know, not, I'm not criticizing that, but we have to be aware that that's what those filmmakers were trying Mm -hmm. to do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Every piece of media has some kind of call to action or some kind of intention for what it wants the audience to do. And I think part of media literacy is understanding what is journalism versus what is people's opinion. And it's not always labeled as opinion, but no, sometimes it's like it is. People don't know the difference between a tweet and mm-hmm. a piece of investigative journalism. You can't weigh those things the same. <laughs> like they're not the same, but the way that even the visualization of the newsfeed, mm-hmm. a blog post from my aunt and a investigative journalism piece from Washington Post in my feed, it looks visually the same. It does. So how, how unless I know what I'm looking for and what I need to be thinking, why would I weigh them differently? 
there's no hierarchy of knowledge in the way visually a post gets shared, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why education is so important. So how do we know who we can trust? And are there any tips that you can provide on finding accurate information and being able to critically analyze, you know, facts, I say with quotation marks? (laughs) Well, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that as human beings, we are not capable of assessing the amount of information coming at us at the speed in which it comes to us. And we have to learn to not react right? So we have to be willing to say things like, I actually don't know anything about that. So I I don't know, you know, and I think that what we have to be willing to do is recognize that just because we have more information coming at us doesn't mean we're more informed. And we have to be really careful about the way we communicate about things that we are not experts in. So how many times have you heard someone say, oh my God, I read on Facebook that blah, blah, blah is, you know, and it's just like, oh my God. Okay. First of all, who who was it from? You know, like we have to be really careful of the kind of jump to I know what's going on in the world because I read one article about this thing, you know? (laughs) And so I think that that's one thing we have to be aware of. And that if we don't have time to really learn about something, which, you know, I would say that you want to read a few articles uh, and like watch a few different sources. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From different sources to even start to assess a situation before we start to respond and before we start to share and before we start to um, input into the frenzy of the reaction. Like I can tell you that Facebook's head of security, I think was, was in a hearing and there's all of this viral stuff now about one of the Congress people telling this woman, Antigone Davis to take down Finstas. Can you take down Finstas? So Finstas are counts that teenagers start that are followed by kind of a few of their close friends. And it's more of like, a private group. It's almost like a Facebook group rather than their real Insta. And Mm -hmm. the irony of course, is that the fake Insta is where they're kind of more themselves because Mm -hmm. they don't feel like they have to impress these like close group of friends. Anyway, the way that the clip runs, it makes it look like this congressperson is a total idiot, has no idea what he's talking about and has no idea what a Finsta is. And there's this back and forth that I looked at and was like, oh my God, this is ridiculous how embarrassing this is that this congressperson knows so little about these, like the clip that was shared Mm -hmm. made me think very specific things about Congress. Now, some of that might be true, but as I started to dig a little deeper and started to read the comments and started to realize that this was a long hearing and there was some of it that was out of context and there were some people saying like what he's asking for is to better monitor these other accounts like that there's so many fake accounts like that that can't be good for teens or whatever now he didn't do it in the right way and whatever the point is is that what i wanted to do immediately when i saw that clip was share it and say we're doomed <laughs> no one knows what they're talking about right but now i've like at least taken a step back and said I don't know what, what Mm -hmm. any of this means. So I'm actually not going to share. I'm going to do a little research. I want to talk about it in class next week. So, so we have to be willing to just like stop and think, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes and, and not get involved in the frenzy of it. If we 
if we can avoid it. But how do I find things that I can trust? How do I find reliable sources? So that can be a difficult question because I might trust my cousin. They might not be an expert in a certain thing, but I might trust their advice. And so the word trust can be really tricky Mm -hmm. because I might trust the New York Times, but they get it wrong sometimes, right? And I don't love how they do certain things sometimes. So I think rather than always asking ourselves, like, how do I know what to trust? It's what questions should I be asking no matter what it is that I come across, right? Recognizing also that there are certain journalistic principles that reputable journalism institutions have to follow, right? There are certain standards. The first thing that I always say is if you're not following Reuters, you're, you know, you should follow Reuters. Reuters is a generally fair, reliable, global news source. And so if I see something pop up on CNN, I might go to Reuters immediately and see like, are they covering it? Like, say you turn on CNN or say you turn on Fox or say you turn on MSNBC. If I were to turn those channels on, I'm not doing it so that I can find out what's going on in the world. I'm mm-hmm. turning them on to see what they're covering and why. Yeah. Right. So it's all their opinion. Yeah, it, it, they have a panel of people with yeah. their opinion on things, but they're also choosing what stories to cover. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting a sense of what's going on in the world you're getting a sense of what CNN thinks is valuable to cover right now. Mm -hmm. And that is really with everything, right? So if you get something pushed at you on Twitter from New York Times or Washington Post, they're all sending what they, you know, what they believe is what is valuable for us to know, what they believe is newsworthy. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of work to come to that decision. But the truth is, is there's a lot of stuff happening in the world that they're not covering, right? So when you, so just take it with a grain of salt and recognize that I'm going to the New York Times to see what they have determined was newsworthy, what they felt was needed to be covered and recognizing that news is news because it's also not common, right? News Mm -hmm. makes the news because it's something that stands out. In my class, I, I talk about like the way media presents risk. Mm-hmm. And if you look, for example, at the cause of death, like over the last decade, and if you look at guns and terrorism and, you know, where they sit on that list is really way down, right? And what is at the top? Cancer, heart disease, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I asked my students, like, how, how afraid of you of a terrorist attack in New York? Most of them raised their hand. How mm-hmm. many of you are afraid of furniture falling on you. (laughs) And everyone's like, what? Like, well, you're more at risk of furniture falling on you, you know, but the way that that we are presented with terrorism and all Mm -hmm. of these things, because they take up so much space in the news media, Mm -hmm. we get this perception that the world is filled with this. Now, is there too much of it going on? Of course. But what is the risk of me as an individual, you know, slim, go get your heart checked. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like go get your physical. So I think that we just have to recognize that there are things that are always missing from the media. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff left out. So rather than asking, how do I trust this? Maybe ask what's left out that I should know mm-hmm. whose voices aren't in this. And that's all I kept thinking, watch the social dilemma again, and just, just answer those two questions. 
whose voice is missing? Mm -hmm. What are they not telling me? What are the things that I'm not learning about this? Then learn that stuff and then assess all of this together. And we just because it's documentary doesn't mean there isn't perspective and bias. Mm -hmm. Newspaper and television journalism is the early form of how the algorithm on social media got started. It's what does the audience like to see on the front page? What are the stories that they're more likely to read, that they're more likely to respond to? And that's how the newspapers choose. And that's how they became segmented into conservative and and liberal and, and different voices on different channels. So we have to realize that, that everyone who is writing something has bias Yeah, and we even have bias. So we have to recognize even our own yeah. bias and the stuff that we believe and question that when we're reading something. Of course, everyone comes to all media messages with their own life experience, their own bias, their mm-hmm. own you know, their own perspective. And that's kind of why you can go to a movie with like your best friend and one of mm-hmm. you can walk out loving it. And one of you can walk out thinking it was the worst movie you'd ever seen. Yeah, You know, we don't see the world the same. So we can't expect to understand all media messages the same. But it doesn't mean we should just stop trying to be informed. We should just increase our sources of information, try to cross-check things, look into who the authors are and Hopefully that will give us a well-rounded view of that subject. So I think what you're saying is, is right on point for sure. The, the documentary that you were in called Fake, it was created before the pandemic and even before the 2020 election. It talked about Sandy Hook and uses that as an example. But now that we have vaccine hesitancy, COVID, mistrust of COVID, mistrust of the election results from 2020, climate change, all of this that has come since then, has the problem of misinformation grown? Or is it just that we have new topics of misinformation going around? I think both. We're up against a, you know, a pandemic that we haven't seen in a hundred years. And we certainly haven't seen within the context of our communication systems right now. So the the amount of information we can get, the amount of speed in which it can be spread is, is new. And in some ways that's been actually incredibly helpful, right? There is some benefit to the fact that we've been able to get information and move quickly around COVID. But the downside, of course, is it's not all the information is reliable and there's a lot mm-hmm. of mis and disinformation. So I would say that the rate as which is spread is less concerning to me as the risk of what is being spread, if that makes sense. Like we're really dealing with a life or death issue, right? Mm-hmm. You can at this point say that people are dying regularly mm-hmm. because they are believing bad information about COVID and COVID misinformation. And that's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. Before the 2016 election, certainly in the US. So before the 2016, before the 2020, before the pandemic, we weren't asking a lot of questions of the tech companies. We weren't talking about things like algorithmic bias. We weren't talking about privacy and safety and security on a cultural level. That Certainly there were researchers and experts that were doing it, but now it's part of our cultural conversation. So to me, the heightened amount and severity of the mis- and disinformation has allowed for us to explore the questions that we probably should have been asking when these platforms uh, were born, right? I will stand that I don't even think Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. knew what you was going to happen. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> I, I think that he is 
he was just as shocked as anyone in 2016, you know, which is, there's an absurdity to that, but meaning that like they didn't, it wasn't the intent necessarily. I don't know. Social dilemma might tell you differently. <laughs> so, but the point is that what is good is the increase of mis and disinformation and the danger and risk of it has led to an increase of scrutiny, mm-hmm. an increase of oversight, an increase of questioning and being skeptical. And that is positive. We needed to do that. I guess to answer your question, do I think there's more information? Yes. I think the tools are getting faster, more adept, more technically advanced. I think they're spreading faster. And I think people's ability to use the tools to share mis- and disinformation, people are getting more nimble in their ability to create media. That, of course, is going to add to the, um, to the issue. But I do believe that's one reason why, you know, this work in media literacy is so important because mm-hmm. we're not going to combat it without education. Absolutely. So speaking of, can you tell me a bit about the National Association for Media Literacy Education and your mission? Yeah. So we are the largest media literacy education organization in the world. We have about 7,000 members and we're kind of the umbrella organization for U.S. media literacy. So within our organization, we have about almost 90 organizational partners, which are organizations that are doing media literacy work on a local, national, regional scale. So we do a lot of work in amplifying and sharing the work of our partners and members. Um, And we also host national conferences. We host U.S. Media Literacy Week, which is coming up October 25th to 29th. We um, We have a research project currently underway about looking at impactful media literacy practice. We have a National Media Literacy Alliance, which is an alliance of 11 other teacher organizations. So English teachers, math teachers, science teachers, social studies teachers, all of them under one umbrella. So this is all created to advance our mission, which is to see media literacy highly valued and widely practiced as an essential life skill. So pretty much Everything that we do for our members, for our partners, is about moving the needle forward with media literacy. And um, besides kind of working within the education community, we also work with stakeholders to get them to understand the importance of media literacy. So for example, we do work with the tech industry and we do work with the media industry, really trying to figure out also how do we make these tools more media literate themselves so that when people come to the platforms, there's some media literacy skill building built into it. So is media literacy part of the curriculum for K through 12, or is it something that people elect to put into their curriculum? Yeah. So there's really very few mandates around the country for media literacy education and and training. Um, We do have some legislation. There's about 18 bills that have passed around the country that are kind of asking the education systems to either increase training for media literacy or professional development for teachers or Mm -hmm. bringing media literacy in the classroom. The issue is that media literacy at this moment in time is still really up to like the individual school, the individual teacher, maybe the individual district leader Mm -hmm. to bring it into the classroom, right? So no one is saying this is a must. And that is a very, very tough way to scale. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't really scale 
classroom by classroom. You need to scale from the top up. And so what we are really looking at is how do we shift from this being kind of individually driven to national priority. So we are, we recognize that at this point in time, we don't need to prove anymore that media literacy important is important. That seems mm-hmm. to be like a given. But what we do have to show is how do we do it? And then we got to make it happen. And so that's where we're, we are right now. So right now, the U.S. does not really dedicate any significant resources on a national level or even state by state for this work. And that's what we need to focus on and work towards. Mm-hmm. That's great. How can people get involved with your organization? So we are a free membership organization. So if you are interested in media literacy and learning about the media literacy community and the work that's being done, we are at www.namely.net, which is N-A-M-L-E.net. And you can join and become a member. You can be involved with U.S. Media Literacy Week. You can sign up to support through social media efforts. You can sign up to do an event. Uh, You can attend events. You know, a lot of them are open to the public. Um, If you are someone that has an affiliation with the school, if you have kids, if you know kids, make sure that your schools are thinking about media literacy and ask what support teachers need. Send them to us, you know, have them sign up. We are a great resource for teachers to find more materials and more training opportunities. Um, And then also there's an organization called Media Literacy Now that is pushing for legislation across states. And so you can tell your representative that you want to see media literacy be mandated. There's a lot of ways to get involved. And I do feel like one thing to note is no matter what it is that you care about, media is impacting that issue, Mm -hmm. which is why media literacy is so important. Whether you are passionate about climate change or abortion rights or um, politics or sport. I mean, literally anything you mm-hmm. care about is being influenced by media messages. So media literacy is, is significant. And mm-hmm. so we need all the help we can get. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh my God. It was a pleasure. I hope, I hope the people from social dilemma don't watch, um, don't listen. <laughs> no. And I don't want to knock them. I think like Tristan Harris is doing like incredible work at the center for humane technology. I just take issue with a certain type of storytelling that does not give a balanced view of, mm-hmm. of the situation. And I, I think that we need to be able to have more nuanced conversations. Yeah. Well, even just having a conversation like you and I had where we're scrutinizing a piece of media, that is very important to even just not just trust something you watch just because they put a, a lot of hours into putting it together. So yeah. Or it that it well looks done. good. Like you, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like you could argue that certain, you know, like you said, conspiracy theorists um, are very good editors. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're really good at web design. You know, you have to be really careful about that. I have to say that when I watched Social Dilemma, I really wanted, I wanted to rip out all of the dramatization Mm -hmm. and just listen to the experts talk because I think the experts talking, they had valuable input, valuable perspective to share. And it just really took me out of that Mm -hmm. seeing how they dramatize. I think I had the most. It wouldn't have been as good though. No. As a a filmmaker to just watch an interview is not as entertaining. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I have to say though, like I have a, a 16 and a 19 year old. So when social, what did social dilemma come out like two years ago, mm-hmm. I was like living this life of this family that, and <laughs> my experience is so far removed. It was like a ridiculous, like it didn't help me because it was so extreme. Mm-hmm. And that is what I take issue with. I don't know why I'm still talking about this. <laughs> no worries obviously maybe I should come on again and just talk about (laughs) yeah and I really do appreciate what they were trying to do I'm sorry very passionate about this okay and thanks for listening everyone I'm filmmaker artist author and your host Laura Mioli Farragon you can connect with me getting creative tips and inspiration on social media Twitter Facebook and Instagram at Loudavision and for a limited time you can purchase my one-of-a-kind paintings on Etsy.com that link is in the description You can listen to more of these podcasts, read my blog, watch my videos, and contact me. Just go to loudervision.com. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss any new episodes. Take care and stay informed, everyone. That's brilliant. (laughs)